a very happy uh, Resurrection Day to you. I do want to give a fast shout out to my mother. It's her birthday today. And so... I know that she watches, so I wanted to cover my bases here. (laughs) If you could take your Bibles and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 8, and verse uh, 18. The title of our message this morning is The Believer's Future Resurrection Body. A lot of the teaching that you get on Resurrection Sunday is oftentimes it's um, it's sort of presented as the empty tomb proves Jesus was the Son of God, kind of an apologetics um, defense of the faith type of approach, which is very needed and very legitimate. We're going to go a slightly different direction today. And we're going to talk about hope. His resurrection is our hope for the future. If he did not rise from the dead, we would have no hope. And one of the great truths that he promises us because of his resurrection from the dead is the fact that he rose and so we will what? We will rise as well. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 23 calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits. You see that in verse 20 and verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First fruits is harvest imagery. It goes back to Israel's harvest cycle. The first fruits is the crop that came in first. And that was always a happy time for the nation of Israel because the first fruits, the initial crop, guaranteed the other harvests that were coming. General harvest and gleanings. No first fruits, there wouldn't be subsequent harvests. And you'll notice here that Paul uses first fruits analogy to describe Christ's resurrection. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And then later, same paragraph, Paul says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are at his coming. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The empty tomb guarantees our hope for the future. And what then is our hope for the future? He is going to put you into a new body. And so we're going to study uh, today, Lord willing, the future body that you will be in one day because Jesus came out of the grave in a resurrected body. I hope you like the letter P. Um, These all begin with the letter P. So here we go. Number one, the problem. 
What is the problem? Well, the verses were read earlier today that our world is in a state of travail. It's in a state of groaning because of original sin. This is Paul's groaning chapter. The Holy Spirit is groaning. Creation itself is groaning. And and guess who else is groaning? We are groaning. Because we are in bodies touched by original sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul says, Not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Any groaning this morning on your part? <laughs> Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Dr. Thomas Constable uh, puts it like this as he is describing our world literally in a state of bondage, in a state of chains because of original sin. Dr. Constable says we groan because we feel the pains associated with mortality, namely our physical limitations. Sickness and the increasing disability that accompanies advancing age. We groan because we long to enter into whatever God has for us in the future. An intermediate body, a resurrection body, or a heavenly home. We want to be clothed. God promises us of something better. And those promises make us dissatisfied with what we have now. We long for the time when immortal life will, in a sense, consume what is mortal and dies. We're in a world that's dying. People die. Why is that? It's because of what God said when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3. Immediately when our forebears died, God said there's a spiritual consequence and there's also a physical consequence. It was articulated at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread until you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. We came from the dirt, and because of original sin, God says, you're going right back to the dirt. We're in bodies that are decaying. We're in bodies that are dying. If you don't believe me, as I like to say, just uh, show up at your high school reunion and see all the people you don't even recognize anymore. And they don't recognize you anymore either. Just take out the good old high school yearbook and compare it to your modern driver's license picture and you'll see exactly what I'm speaking of. This is a problem. Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. A lot of the world they lose heart over the decline of the physical body. Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. There, there is a absolute reality that has come to the human race because of original sin, the decaying body. 
physical problems, physical limitations. It is very interesting to me that Jesus came into the world to deal with our physical problems as well as our spiritual problems. In John chapter 5 and verse 3, there was a man there at the pool of Bethesda. And it says of this particular man, it says a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Think about that. He was a, a paralytic. He couldn't, he couldn't move. And as you read through that paragraph, it says in John chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, pick, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and he began to walk. Uh, a historical account like that demonstrates that Jesus came into the world Yes, obviously he was concerned about our primary spiritual problems, but he came into the world to, to minister to one of the deepest needs that we have, that's our physical problems, our physical limitations. And all of us, because of original sin, based on some of these scriptures we've already shared, are in this sort of decaying, groaning state. And we desperately need to be clothed from something outside of ourselves. Which takes us to our second P in our description of the believer's coming resurrection body. It's, it's the power. Because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, the time in history is coming, if you are related to Christ by way of faith, that you will be put in a body that is powerful. Unlike the body that we're currently in. Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 excuse me, verses 42 through 44 says, So also is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Notice that Paul here is contrasting the current bodies that we are in with the body that's coming. The current body is perishable. The next body will be imperishable. The current body is lowly, the next body will be honorable. The current body is weak, the next body will be powerful. The current body is natural, the next body will be spiritual. Now, let me make this clear, it's still you. I can still recognize you and you can recognize me, but I'm going to look a lot better. (laughs) And you're going to look a lot better because it's the body that God intended for us to have before original sin began to defile and deface our current bodies. It's the body as God intended people to live in. Think about a body with no broken bones, no cancer, no fatigue, no recurring illnesses or problems. It's kind of like the current body is a lot like an automobile. You put a certain number of miles on it, and you have to start taking it in for more checkups to the mechanic. Think about a body with no such limitations. Let me take this a step further. Think about a body that needs no sleep. 
I'm of the persuasion that in our resurrected bodies we will not need to sleep. Why is that? Because sleep is something we do for rejuvenation. Why would the powerful body that we are moving into need rejuvenation? That's why when you get to the last two chapters of the Bible on the chart there, it would be the far right-hand side of the screen, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you'll notice that in the what we call the eternal state, there is no sun. Now there's the sun, S-O-N, but there's no sun or moon, S-U-N. Revelation 21, 23 says the city, that's our ultimate abode, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 22, verse 5 says, They will have no need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. You can tell a lot about a place by what's not there. What's, our, what's eternity going to look like with God? No, no Satan, no sea, no death, crying, mourning, or pain. No, no sun, no moon, no temple, no night, no evil, no curse. You'll notice there numbers four and five, no sun and no moon. In other words, the ordinary cycle of darkness and then light is something that ceases to exist in the eternal state. And I would venture to say part of the reason for that is the sleep cycle is no longer needed. I mean, no longer is it necessary to work in the day and then to recover at night through sleep via rejuvenation because you're in a body that requires no rejuvenation whatsoever. It's a body of power. And that's our destiny in God because of Jesus rising from the dead. He is the first fruits. His resurrection virtually guarantees your resurrection as well. It's a glorious thing. I mean, this, this is a time of optimism and hope. I mean, the empty tomb just doesn't prove Jesus is God. That's certainly part of it. But when you look at the objective evidence for the empty tomb, it should well your heart with hope that there's a better world coming. There's a better body coming. Let's move on to our third P here, and that has to do with the permanency of this new body. You know, our current body, it's analogized to a tent. You see that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This comes out pretty clear in the New King James Version. Peter, writing at the end of his life, says, Yes, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent, referring to his body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter looked at his current body and he was just about to die when he wrote this. He said, in this same chapter, the time of my departure is at hand as the Lord has made clear to me. So this current body that I'm in, it's it's nothing more than a tent. It's, It's temporary. When you go camping, for example, and set up a tent, you're not staying there forever. You're there for a limited period of time. And then the time comes where you fold up the tent and you go home. 
the current bodies that we're in are not designed to live forever. They're a mere tent. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 4 explains this. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed in this house we groan. It's interesting how Paul keeps talking about groaning in his body. We, we groan, longing to be clothed with a dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have put it on, we w- uh, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan. Being burdened because we do not want, we, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul says, I'm, I'm, you know, Lord, I'm just tired of being in this tent. I want to be transferred into something more permanent. A lot of people, interestingly enough, as you compare this body with the next body that's coming, draw an analogy between the tabernacle that Israel sojourned in with ultimately the temple that the nation of Israel built. Dr. Ron Rhodes, in his wonderful book, 40 Days Through Bible Prophecy, he says this, he says, the temporary tabernacle of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness was a giant tent-like structure. This tent was eventually replaced with a permanent building, a stone temple, after Israel entered the promised land. Here is the nation of Israel coming out of Egyptian bondage, coming to Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God. The rough date on that would be 1446 B.C. And from that point on, until Israel entered the land and finally built their first temple, they lived in a tent-like structure. It's called the tabernacle. And it was sort of like a mobile temple, if you will. Uh, when the nation of Israel moved and traveled, they took down the tabernacle via the specific instructions of God. And they moved and they went to their next campground or resting place and they put the tabernacle back up again. And they did this from 1446 B.C. all the way into the time period of Solomon. 966 B.C. And so finally the time in history came when God allowed the temple to be rebuilt. 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1, 966 B.C. Israel finally had a permanent structure. And if you can understand the distinction between the tabernacle and the temple, you see the distinction that Paul is drawing here between our current body, which is just a tent, to the permanent structure that we will be in one day, the resurrected body. All of it made possible because of the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits. Bible teacher William MacDonald puts it this way, a tent is not a permanent dwelling, but a portable one. One for pilgrims and travelers. 
The temporary tent is taken down, but a new permanent house awaits the believer in the land beyond the skies. This is a building from God in the sense that God is the one who gives it to us. The believer's future body is also described as eternal in the heavens. It is a body that will no longer be subject to disease, decay, and death, but one that will endure forever in our heavenly home. One of these days, I will pass away, as will you, if we are not the rapture generation. And uh, people, perhaps at my memorial service, will say something like, you know, Andy passed away. The truth of the matter is Andy did not pass away. Andy moved. (laughs) He moved. He, He moved from his... Temporal structure, the tabernacle, into the permanent temple of God that God has always wanted me to have, but which original sin obstructed. When, when the Christian dies, they don't, they don't depart, they move, they, they transfer. They move from residence A to residence B. And residence B, as we're learning here, is far superior being in that new body that's not subject to disease, decay, death, one that will endure forever, our eternal home. I'll be at home in the permanent structure that God always wanted me to have. We come now to our fourth P, and that has to do with the physicality. The coming body is an actual physical body, which is just as real as the body that we are in now. How do we know that? We know that because the Bible is very clear that our coming body is patterned after Christ's resurrection body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 49 of our resurrection body says, We also will bear the image of the heavenly. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of power that He has even to subject all things to himself. My body's going to be like his body. Your, your body's going to be like his body. You see this also in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as to what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, it's interesting that when some of the Hollywood stars and starlets start to sort of physically unravel, because it's a natural process that we're all going through, how their entire self-image is destroyed. Because in this tent, they've carved out an ability to be special, be different, 
make a living, be an actor, be an actress, be on TV. Well, they don't put a lot of unattractive people on TV. Have you noticed that? And it's interesting that when the body starts to decay, how somebody's self-image, if it's not rooted in Jesus, will be immediately destroyed. This is why Paul says, yes, the outer man is decaying, but we're not losing hope. Because I'm going to be put one day into something that's very better, very much better. In fact, our body is going to be patterned after Christ's body. So if you want to understand what your future body is going to be like, all you have to do is to study the body that Jesus was in when he came out of the tomb. So here are some clues then related to the coming body. Those really relate to numbers 4, 5, and 6. First of all, the physicality of it. The disciples could touch Christ in his resurrected body. Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus says, See, my hands and my feet, that is, I myself, touch me and see. He he told him to touch him. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Now, that's not a pre-resurrection statement. That's a post-resurrection statement. The women at the tomb... The very first ones to recognize that the tomb was empty and to preach the resurrected Christ, Jesus told them to touch him. Matthew 28, verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came and took hold of his feet. I mean, they're they're physically taking hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Mary Magdalene, the same issue. John 20, verses 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary, post-resurrection. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. In other words, she was giving him a bear hug to the point where he said, okay, that's nice, but, you know. (laughs) For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to the Father and your... My father and your father and my God and your God. In other words, she was physically hugging him. Of course, the most famous story on this, you know it very well, is is Doubting Thomas. John chapter 20 and verse 25, Thomas says, Unless I see the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Pretty bold statement. Jesus shows up. In fact, Jesus, I'll mention this a little bit later, walked through a wall. Jesus shows up and it says in John twenty-one twenty-seven. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, go ahead and physically touch me. These are physical manifestations. It is very interesting to me, the way the Bible describes the resurrected body is when we receive it, all of the problems with our current bodies are taken away. There's no bandages, wounds, band-aids, leftover problems. 
But Jesus' body will always have within it the scars of the resurrection. In fact, uh, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, John the Apostle describes the resurrected Christ as follows in heaven. He said, a lamb standing as if it had been slain. John could see Christ in his resurrected body, but he could also see that the wounds of Christ, the very same thing Thomas discovered in John 20, were still there. Why is that? Why, why is it that everybody's body is fixed completely? There's no record of anything from the past in our resurrected bodies, but that's not true with Jesus' body. Why is it that the wounds are still visible? I think there's a very simple reason. So that every time we interact with Jesus in heaven and in the coming kingdom, you never forget the price that was paid to make eternity with God a possibility. It would be easy to forget that, wouldn't it? Being in heaven and in glory, no problems. You forget what Jesus had to do to make it all possible through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The apostles could see Jesus in his resurrected body. Matthew 28, verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, about verses 4 through 8, describes all of the people that could see Jesus when he rose from the dead. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, that he was buried... That he was raised on the third day according to the, to the scriptures. That he appeared. Notice the repetition of the word appeared here in this paragraph that I'm reading. That he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And then Paul says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Appeared, appeared, appeared. That's the power of sight, visibility. That's physicality. You see you, you, you touch. I, I love this, these verses here, verses 6 and 7. I love all the verses, but these ones stand out. Paul in his uh, resurrection chapter says this, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you don't believe me, go check, check it out with the 500. Most of them are still alive. Paul the Apostle here throws down the gauntlet and he says, don't take my word for it. Go talk to these 500 or so eyewitnesses. Could you imagine what would have happened if those 500 witnesses had contradicted Paul? Oh, we never heard of any such thing. 
The book of 1 Corinthians would have been stopped dead in its tracks. No one would have taken it seriously. How could it have been passed down through the generations and revered and respected? Christianity would have been destroyed at that point. It's like somebody that writes a book saying JFK died of natural causes. And yet there are eyewitnesses that saw JFK die. Uh, One of my friends, um, the late Mal Couch, was one of the eyewitnesses to that horrific event. So if someone comes out with a book and said JFK died of natural causes, all you have to do is validate it with the existing eyewitnesses that the account is wrong. And Christianity would have ceased to exist. You know, it's interesting that the human mind has come up with many, many theories to explain away the empty tomb. There's the swoon theory, he never really died. There's the theft theory, someone stole the body. There's the wrong tomb theory, everybody went to the wrong tomb. That's why they thought it was unoccupied. My personal favorite is the hallucination theory. Those 500 eyewitnesses all saw hallucination. I mean, this is what you have to go to if you want to deny the truths of Christianity. The problem is any psychologist will tell you that when a hallucination occurs, people don't have the exact same hallucination, let alone 500 people. Hallucinations have a tendency to be more personal to the person having the hallucination. But 500 eyewitnesses, Paul says, saw Jesus. They physically saw him. And so obviously Christ in his body could be seen. He could be touched and he could be seen. Also in Christ's resurrected body, he had conversations with the apostles. In John chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, it says, They went out, this is post-resurrection, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. John 21 and verse 6 says, He said to them, now who's he? That's Jesus on the shore in his resurrected body. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Hey, guys, uh, just throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they understood him. So they're obviously conversing back and forth. In fact... Post-resurrection, before Christ ascended, there's about 40 days there where Jesus got into theological discussion with the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I mean, here he is for 40 days. They're asking him questions. They're asking him about theology. 
Where, where is the kingdom? He's answering them. This is all taking place in his resurrected body. It's an obvious physical experience. Acts 1, 6 and 7 says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, that's Christ in his resurrected body, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority. My only point is all of this discussion, all of this seeing, all of this touching is obviously something very, very physical. It's very, very real. So when you are put in a resurrected body, it will be an absolute real experience. It will be just as real as how you feel now, except you'll feel a lot better. One of the reasons this has been lost to Christianity is because of that lower circle there from Alexandria, Egypt, a hotbed of Gnostic teaching. The Gnostics said the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad. If the physical world is bad, then Jesus never was resurrected in a body, the Gnostics said. It just seemed like he had a body. It's a doctrine called docetism. This is why John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 writes and explains that Antichrist teaching is teaching which denies that Jesus has come in a body. But there was this terrible doctrine called Gnosticism, spiritual world good, physical world bad. This is where the doctrine of amillennialism comes from. There's no earthly kingdom recycled into existence in the 4th century by a man named Augustine. Augustine, who wrote The City of God, promoting amillennialism, among other heresies, is probably the most influential theologian in the last 2,000 years of church history. And when I say influential, I'm speaking of the influence for bad and not good. A lot of Christianity puts Augustine on a very high level. Some even refer to him as Saint Augustine. I do not refer to him as Saint Augustine. The man was heretical. The man brought into Christianity an untold amount of confusion. And Augustinianism, even to this day, plagues the Christian mind. Because the Christian thinks the next world is some kind of, you know, never-never world. It's not physical. I mean, what are we going to be doing? Some people think we're going to be sitting on a cloud somewhere. Maybe if I have a body, I'll have a white sheet on me. I'm going to be singing the Hallelujah Chorus 10,000 times, bored out of my mind. You know, we talk about the hope of heaven and most people are like, I don't even really want to go. It doesn't sound that interesting to me. And that is the influence of Augustine. But the truth of the matter is heaven and the kingdom that follows is a surreal experience. It's more physical and it's more real than how you feel right now. You will be in a body which is recognizable. You will be able to be touched in that body. You will be able to be seen in that body. You will be able to have in-depth 
theological conversations in that body because that body is patterned, as we have seen, after the body of Jesus, which was highly and completely and totally 100% physical. Augustinian theology, eschatology, has robbed the Christian church of this physical understanding of the next life. We see the body's problem, we see the body's power, we see the body's permanency, we see the body's physicality, and now we see the picnic. Sorry, I needed a pee. <laughs> Had to consult my thesaurus on that one. The question is, are we, are we going to be able to eat in that physical body? I mean, we know we can eat now. It's one of the things in life I'm actually really good at. I excel at it. (laughs) But you'll notice that Jesus in his resurrected body was having meals with his disciples. In fact, in John 21 with the giant catch of fish, he said in John 21 verse 12, come and have breakfast. Breakfast with Jesus. That's an amazing thing. In uh, Luke 24, 42, and 43, it says of Jesus, as he's interacting with his disciples in his resurrected body, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. That's Jesus eating in his resurrected body. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 The NIV version here, it says on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, what he promised, which you have heard from me. So it's like, here's Jesus in his resurrected body eating with them, and then he stops his eating and says, oh, by the way, don't leave Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he goes back to finishing his lunch. These are all things that Jesus was experiencing in his resurrected body. That's why so much of our knowledge of the end times, and this is what Augustine has robbed us of, so much of our knowledge of the end times involves physical meals. When Jesus comes back, Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, there is going to be the marriage, what's the next word? Supper of the Lamb. Doesn't that involve eating? Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, in the millennial kingdom, the NIV, I think, has it right here. And it says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You can't have a feast and you can't have a supper without food. But wait a minute, everyone's resurrected. Well, the resurrection body is no impediment to eating. For us, any more than it was for Christ. How about the eternal state? You ever studied that? Revelation 22, verse 2. The trees of life. It says, In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit. Isn't that interesting? Yielding its fruit every every month. Every month. That means time increments are still active in the eternal state food is still active in the eternal state i mean think think about eating but not having to do it to survive 
just for the sheer enjoyment of it. And the best I can tell, you won't even gain weight in the process. <laughs> the picnic. The picnic. Number six, the postponement. What do I mean by postponement? I mean suspension. Suspension of certain laws that currently govern our bodies. Current laws that govern our bodies that currently exist won't exist in the next body. I referenced earlier John 20 verse 26. Look at this very carefully. John 20, 26. It says, After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their... Stood in their midst. He just walked through a door that was closed. In other words, the normal laws that you have to open a door before you can enter a room apparently were suspended. Walked right through a wall. Here is a depiction of the New Jerusalem. I mean, that's so neat. We've got to see that one more time, don't we? There we go. I mean, that is so cool. What is that? That's a giant city. It's made like a cube that descends in Revelation chapter 21. And it comes down to the earth and it takes its place right on the earth. And where's it going to land? It's going to land right there on the state of Texas. Lone Star State. Because Paul, ha- Paul had to be Texan. In fact, maybe Paul wasn't Texan. Because he said he was content no matter what state he was in. So I don't know if a Texan would ever say that. But wasn't content. Was content. I think it's was content. Anyway, my wife is throwing off my jokes here. But here, here's something that's very interesting. This city hits the earth or comes to the earth after it's a new earth. It's not until the current earth is done away by fire that this city descends. Now, here's something very interesting. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 26, it says this. The Jerusalem above, referring to this city, is free. She is our mother. I've never noticed this before. It took Dr. Pentecost to point this out to me that is is in the present tense in Greek. It's a present tense verb. Which means that this city, the New Jerusalem, currently exists. I mean, it's presently in existence, but it's not going to actually fall to the earth until the earth is habitable. It won't come to this earth, because that's a holy city, and this earth is corrupt. But it will come to the earth once we have a new heavens and a new earth. 
once the current heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. But Galatians 4.26 tells us that the city exists now. I am understanding it as follows. The city exists, it's hovering in space, but it's not ready to come to the earth. And it won't come to the earth until after the millennial kingdom. Which means that city, if I'm understanding this right, is hanging suspended over the earth for the thousand year kingdom. And I would understand it as follows. We, as resurrected people, will have the option of traveling back and forth from a corrupted earth, millennium is still a corrupted earth, into that city which exists in heaven but has not yet come in the new heavens and new earth. Well, how in the world are you going to travel back and forth as a resurrected person between the current earth and that heavenly city? Well, you don't have to book a flight to do this. You're in a body that is not governed by ordinary laws, including the law of gravity. Just like Jesus in his resurrected body walked right through a wall, you and your resurrected body, I'm thinking, will be able to do the exact same thing. And then every once in a while, as you're ruling and reigning with Christ during the thousand-year kingdom, you say to yourself, I'm really looking forward to the city descending when this earth is dissolved by fire. In fact, I'm looking so forward to it. Let's just go take a little trip up now. You know, beam me up, Scotty. And let's, let's, let's have a guided tour of this, uh, this city. How can you get up and down so quick? The body is not governed by the law of gravity. Any more than the body is governed by a door which tells you you can't enter. I mean, this is, this is exciting stuff, isn't it? And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not planning on starting a new church over this issue. Um, I think um, a lot of things maybe I won't have exactly exactly right. Some of you probably will want to gang up on me in the eternal state and said, well, you had this wrong and you had that wrong. (laughs) But you won't be able to do it out of anger or vengeance because you won't have a sinful impulse. You'll just say, you know, Pastor Andy missed a few things, but he, he really meant well. And so that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. This is a real physical existence in a body which is very physical and it's very real. But at the same time, it's not governed by ordinary laws which govern these bodies. They have been suspended. They have been postponed. Our last one here is the pedigree. And what I mean by pedigree is what some would call race. We as Christians don't believe in race because there's only one race, the human race. But when people use the expression race, they're generally talking about ethnicity, Hispanic, Asian, Caucasian, um, whatever the issue is. In your resurrected body, will you still be the same ethnicity? I think the answer to that question is yes. Because after all, who created ethnicities? God did. It's at the Tower of Babel. 
There was only one language at that time, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. God, to prevent the builders from cooperating, as you know the story, confounded the language, and so people went into their own separate people groups, and that's where different ethnicities, different languages, different nationalities came from. And as far as I can tell, what God did in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel is a binding, irreversible precedent. So if a person is Caucasian today in their resurrected body, they will be Caucasian. If a person is Asian today in their resurrected body, because it's still them, they'll be Asian in their resurrected body. If a person is Hispanic today in their resurrected body, they will be Hispanic. You say, well, pastor, where in the world are you getting this from? I'm getting it from Revelation 21, 24. Describing the eternal state. And it describes that city when it finally comes to the earth. And the city is laid out like a cube. Each of the gates are named after the 12 tribes. So there's going to be a city that's shaped like a cube. Three gates on each side of the city. And this is what it says in Revelation 21, 24. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Revelation 21, 26, describing people in the eternal state coming in and out of these city gates. It says they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Revelation 22, verse 2 says in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations study that word nations in the original language koine greek you'll see it's a translation from ethnos from ethnos we get the word ethnicity so ethnicities are something that God himself created that will permanently exist in people's resurrected bodies throughout the ages. The problem, why we need it, the power that's coming, the permanency of it as we transition from a tent to a temple, the physicality of it, it's just as physical as Christ's body was, the picnic of it, the, the food, the, the feasting, the postponement of it, the normal laws of nature, although it's a physical body, don't seem to be governing these bodies. And then the, the pedigree of it, the love of God for the ethnicities of the nations of the earth, which he himself is ultimately responsible for. The last point of this is the conclusion, the provision, the provision, the provision that God has made to participate 
in this promise. As we mentioned in the Sunday School Hour, the great evangelistic book of, of the New Testament is John's Gospel. Seeking to convince people who Jesus is, as demonstrated by his seven signs. His first sign is he changes water into wine, John 2. His final sign is he raises a deceased Lazarus, John 11. So those bracket the seven signs total. And when Jesus fulfilled his last sign, he claimed to be something. And I'm looking there at number five. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus claims to be many things throughout John's gospel, but once he brings Lazarus out of the tomb, he makes the statement in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In fact, here he is speaking with, I believe, Martha. And he says this in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, after he just brought her brother, or was in the process of bringing her brother out of the tomb, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now notice how many times it says believe here. He who believes in me, even if he, uh, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Good theology. Then he asks her this question, do you believe this? No longer speaking generically. No longer speaking in broad theological categories. Now he gets real specific. What do you think about this? He asks her a specific question. Fortunately, she has the right answer. She says to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. In other words, if you believe or trust in the provision of Jesus, which is his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the fact, and we celebrate this at Good Friday, and I have a lot of people emailing me saying, no, he was actually killed on Wednesday. And I'm like, well, you celebrate Good Wednesday if you want to. I'm going to celebrate Good Friday. <laughs> because the important thing is not Wednesday or Friday. It's that he died on our place. Then he rose from the dead on Sunday. That's what's important. And we can have all kinds of interesting discussions about Wednesday, the Wednesday crucifixion. But we typically commemorate this on Friday where he absorbed the wrath of a holy God in our place and then he rose from the dead on Sunday. And if a person believes in this, meaning trust, in other words, you're trusting in the transaction of Jesus, you're no longer trusting in your own good works. Your good works will not get you very far as far as justification before God is concerned. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 talks about how our good works are but filthy rags before him. 
A person does not get saved by trusting in their good works. They get saved by trusting in the good work that Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago. This is what this weekend is all about. If a person will believe or trust in this, then they are tied in to his promises of being the resurrection and the life. Because he rose, you rise. Because as we saw at the beginning of this presentation, he's the first fruits. If a person has never trusted in Christ, then this promise doesn't apply to them. It only applies to the person who believes, which is another way of saying trusts in Christ. That's why we have the word believe there underlined three times. In fact, there it is a fourth time. Believes, believes, believes. She says, yes, Lord, I have believed. If a person is trusting in Christ for salvation, can you really trust God to pull off your future resurrection? We'll close with this, John 6. 39 and 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up at the last day. That's a direct promise from God who cannot lie. If you trust in this, his provision, then the promise is he can't lose you. He won't lose you. He'll give you the gift of eternal life now. And when the time comes for you to have this new body that we've been describing, he'll give it to you. But it's only applicable to the person who believes or trusts in Christ. That's why I think the most important sentence in all of this is at the end of verse 26 where he asks her, do you believe this? Now we're getting personal. Now you're getting into my business. And that's the question I'm going to ask you. Do you believe this? Not what your parents believe, not what your denomination believes. What do you believe? And so with that being said, we just invite people anywhere within the sound of my voice, in the building, listening to the archives after the fact, listening online. What a great, wonderful day to be born spiritually to place their personal faith in Jesus for salvation, which gives them salvation. And part of that grace package is the resurrected body, patterned after his body. We invite anybody anywhere to place their trust in Christ. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. So we pray. Father, we're grateful for this wonderful Resurrection Day. We're thankful for the angle that you've given us in Scripture, that it's more than just proof that you're God. It's hope. Help us leave here, Lord, as people of hope and optimism. As we walk out these truths this week, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.